Chapter Twenty Six of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Twenty Six: How the Three Comrades Gained a Mighty Treasure. It was a bright, crisp winter's day when the little party set off from Bordeaux on their journey to Montauban, where the missing half of their company had last been heard of. Sir Nigel and Ford had ridden on in advance, the knight upon his hackney, while his great war-horse trotted beside his squire. Two hours later Alan Edrickson followed, for he had the tavern reckoning to settle, and many other duties which fell to him as the squire of the body. With him came Aylward and Hordle John armed as of old, but mounted for their journey upon a pair of clumsy land horses, heavy-headed and shambling, but of great endurance, and capable of jogging along all day, even when between the knees of the huge archer, who turned the scale at two hundred and seventy pounds. They took with them the sumpter mules, which carried in panniers the wardrobe and table furniture of Sir Nigel. For the knight, though neither fop nor epicure, was very dainty in small matters and loved, however bare the board or hard the life, that his napery should still be white, and his spoon of silver. There had been frost during the night, and the white hard road rang loud under their horses' irons as they spurred through the east gate of the town, along the same broad highway which the unknown French champion had traversed on the day of the jousts. The three rode abreast, Alan Edrickson with his eyes cast down and his mind distraught, for his thoughts were busy with the conversation which he had had with Sir Nigel in the morning. Had he done well to say so much? Or had he not done better to have said more? What would the knight have said if he had confessed to him his love for the Lady Maud? Would he have cast him off in disgrace? Or might he chide him as having abused the shelter of his roof? It had been ready upon his tongue to tell him all when Sir Oliver had broken in upon them. Perchance Sir Nigel, with his love of all the, the dying usages of chivalry, might have contrived some strange ordeal or feat of arms by which his love should be put to the test. Alan smiled as he wondered what fantastic and wondrous deed would be extracted from him. Whatever it was, he was ready for it. Whether it were to hold the lists in the court of the King of Tartary, to carry a cartel to the Sultan of Baghdad, or to serve a term against the wild heathen of Prussia, Sir Nigel had said that his birth was high enough for any lady, if his fortune could but be amended. Often had Alan curled his lip at the beggarly craving for land or for gold, which blinded man to the higher and more lasting issues of life. Now it seemed as though it were only by this same land and gold that he might hope to reach his heart's desire. But then, again, the Sockman of Minstead was no friend to the constable of Twynham Castle. It might happen that should he amass riches by some happy fortune of war, this feud might hold the two families aloof. Even if Maud loved him, he knew her too well to think that she would wed him without the blessing of her father. Dark and murky was it all, but hope mounts high in youth, and it ever fluttered over all the turmoil of his thoughts like a white plume amid the shock of horsemen. If Alan Edrickson had enough to ponder over, as he rode through the bare plains of Guienne, his two companions were more busy with the present and less thoughtful of the future. 
Aylward rode for half a mile with his chin upon his shoulder, looking back at a white kerchief which fluttered out of the gable window of a high house, which peeped over the corner of the battlements. When, at last, a dip of the road hid it from his view, he cocked his steel cap, shrugged his broad shoulders, and rode on with laughter in his eyes, and his weather-beaten face all ashine with pleasant memories. John also rode in silence, but his eyes wandered slowly from one side of the road to the other, and he stared and pondered, and nodded his head like a traveller who makes his notes and saves them up for the retelling. "'By the rood!' he broke out suddenly, slapping his thigh with his great red hand. "'I knew that there was something amissing, but I could not bring my mind to what it was.' "'Oh, what was it, then?' asked Alan, coming with a start out of his reverie. "'Why, it is the hedge-rose!' roared John, with a shout of laughter. "'The country is all scraped as clear as a friar's pole. But, indeed, I cannot think much of the folk in these parts.' "'Why do they not get to work and dig up these long rows of black and crooked stumps which I see on every hand? Our Franklin of Hampshire would think shame to have such litter upon his soil.' "'Thou foolish old John,' quoth Aylward, "'you should know better, since I have heard that the monks of Bewley could squeeze a good cup of wine from their own grapes. Know, then, that if these rows were dug up, the wealth of the country would be gone, and mayhap there would be dry throats and gaping mouths in England.' for in three months' time these black roots will blossom and snoot and burgeon, and from them will come many a good shipload of Medoc and Gascony, which will cross the narrow seas. But see the church in the hollow, and the folk who cluster in the churchyard. By my hilt, it is a burial, and there is a passing bell. He pulled off his steel cap as he spoke, and crossed himself with a muttered prayer for the repose of the dead. "'There, too,' remarked Alan, as they rode on again, "'that which seems to the eye to be dead "'is still full of the sap of life, even as the vines were. "'Thus God hath written himself and his laws very broadly "'on all that is around us, "'if our poor dull eyes and duller souls "'could but read what he hath set before us.' "'Ha! <laughs> mon petit!' cried the bowman. "'You take me back to the days when you were new-fledged "'and sweet a little chick as ever pecked his way out of a monkish egg. "'I had feared—' that in gaining our debonair young man-at-arms we had lost our soft-spoken clerk. In truth, I have noticed much change in you since we came from Twynham Castle. Surely it would be strange else, seeing that I have lived in a world so new to me. Yet I trust that there are many things in which I have not changed. If I have turned to serve an earthly master, and to carry arms for an earthly king, it would be an ill thing if I were to lose all thought of the great high king and master of all, whose humble and unworthy servant I was ere ever I left Bewley. You, John, are also from the cloisters, but I trow that you do not feel that you have deserted the old service in taking on the new. I am a slow-witted man, said John, and, in sooth, when I try to think about such matters it casts a gloom upon me. Yet— I do not look upon myself as a worse man in an archer's jerkin than I was in a white cowl, if that be what you mean. You have but changed from one white company to the other, quoth Aylward. But by these ten finger-bones it is a passing strange thing to me to think that it was but in the last fall of leaf that we walked from Lyndhurst together, he so gentle and maidenly, and you, John, like a great red-limbed overgrown moon-calf. And now here you are as sprack a squire and as lusty an archer as ever passed down the highway from Bordeaux. 
while I am still the same old Samkin Aylward, with never a change, save that I have a few more sins on my soul and a few less crowns in my pouch. But I have never yet heard, John, what the reason was why you should come out of Bewley. There were seven reasons, said John thoughtfully. The first of them was that they threw me out. Ma foi, camarade, to the devil with the other six. That is enough for me and for thee also. I could see that they are very wise and discreet folk at Bewley. Ah, mon ange, what have you in the pipkin? It is milk, worthy sir, answered the peasant maid, who stood by the door of a cottage with a jug in her hand. Would it please you, gentles, that I should bring you out three horns of it? Nay, my petite, but here is a two-sous piece for thy kindly tongue, and for the sight of thy pretty face. Oh, but she has a bon mien. I have a mind to bide and speak with her. Nay, nay, Aylward, cried Alan. Sir Nigel will await us, and he in haste. True, true, camarade. Adieu, ma chérie, ma cour est toujours à toi. Ooh. Her mother is a well-grown woman also. See where she digs by the wayside. Ma foi, the riper fruit is ever the sweeter. Bonjour, ma belle dame. God have you in his keeping. Said Sir Nigel where he would await us. At uh, Marmont or Aguillon. He said that we could not pass him, seeing that there is but the one road. Aye, and it is a road that I know as I know the Midhurst parish butts, quoth the bowman. Thirty times have I journeyed it, forward and backward, and by the twang of string I am wont to come back this way more laden than I went. I have carried all that I had into France in a wallet, and it hath taken four sumpter mules to carry it back again. God's benison on the man who first turned his hand to the making of war. But there, down in the dingle, is the church of Cardillac, and you may see the inn where three poplars grow beyond the village. Let us on, for a stoop of wine would hearten us upon our way. The highway had lain through the swelling vineyard country, which stretched away to the north and east in gentle curves, with many a peeping spire and feudal tower and cluster of village houses, all clear-cut and hard in the bright wintry air. To their right stretched the blue Garonne, running swiftly seawards, with boats and barges dotted over its broad bosom. On the other side lay a strip of vineyard, and beyond it the desolate and sandy region of the Londe, all tangled with faded gorse and heath and broom, stretching away in unbroken gloom to the blue hills, which lay low upon the furthest skyline. Beyond them might still be seen the broad estuary of the Gironde, with the high towers of Saint-André and Saint-Rémy shooting up from the plain. In front, amid the radiating lines of poplars, lay the riverside townlet of Cardillac, grey walls, white houses, and a feather of blue smoke. "'This is the Mouton d'Or,' said Aylward, as they pulled up their horses at a whitewashed, straggling hostel. "'What ho there!' he continued, beating upon the door with the hilt of his sword. "'Tapster! Osler! Varlet! Hark hither! Now whining on your lazy limbs! Ah! Michel! As red in the nose as ever! Three jacks of the wine of the country, Michel!' for the air bites shrewdly. I pray you, Alan, to take note of this door, for I have a tale concerning it. Tell me, friend, said Alan, to the portly, red-faced innkeeper, has a knight and a squire passed this way within the hour? Nay, sir, it would be two hours back. 
Was he a small man, weak in the eyes, with a want of hair, and speaks very quiet when he is most to be feared? The, the same, the squire answered, but I marvel how you should know how he speaks when he is in wrath, for he is very gentle-minded with those who are beneath him. Praise to the saints! It was not I who angered him, said the fat Michel. Who then? It was young Sieur de Crespigny of Saintorge, who chanced to be here, and made game of the Englishman, seeing he was but a small man and hath a face which is full of peace. But indeed, this good knight was a very quiet and patient man, for he saw that the Sieur de Crespigny was still young and spoke from an empty head. So he sat his horse and quaffed his wine, even as you are doing now, all heedless of the clacking tongue. And what then, Michel? Well, messieurs, it chanced that the Sieur de Crespigny, having said this and that, for the laughter of the varlets, cried out at last about the glove that the knight wore in his coif, asking if it was the custom in England for a man to wear a great archer's glove in his cap. Pardieu, I have never seen a man get off his horse as quick as did the stranger Englishman. Ere the words were past the other's lips he was beside him, his face nigh touching and his breath hot upon his cheek. I think, young sir, quoth he softly, looking into the other's eyes, that now that I am nearer you will very clearly see that the glove is not an archer's glove. Perchance not, said the Sieur de Crespigny, with a twitching lip. Nor is it large, but very small, quoth the Englishman. Less large than I had thought, said the other, looking down, for the knight's gaze was heavy upon his eyelids. And in every way such a glove as might be worn by the fairest and sweetest lady in England, quoth the Englishman. It may be so, said the Sieur de Crespigny, turning his face from him. I am myself weak in the eyes, and have often taken one thing for another, quoth the knight, as he sprang back into his saddle and rode off, leaving the Sieur de Crespigny biting his nails before the door. Ha! <laughs> by the five wounds! Many men of war have drunk my wine, but never one was more to my fancy than this little Englishman. By my hilt, he is our master, Michel, quoth Aylward, and such men as we do not serve under a laggard. But here are four deniers, Michel, and God be with you. En avant, comrade, for we have a long road before us. At a brisk trot the three friends left Cardillac and its wine-house behind them, riding without a halt past Saint-Macer, and on by ferry over the river d'Ort. At the further side the road winds through La Réole, Bazaille, and Marmande, with the sunlit river still gleaming upon the right, and the bare poplars bristling up on either side. John and Alan rode silent on either side, but every inn, farmsteading, or castle brought back to Aylward some remembrance of love, foray, or plunder, with which to beguile the way. "'There is a smoke from Bazas on the farther side of the Garonne,' quoth he. "'There were three sisters yonder, the daughters of a farrier, and by these ten finger-bones a man might ride for a long June day, and never set eyes upon such maidens. There was Marie, tall and grave.' and Blanche, petite and gay, and the dark Agne, with eyes that went through like a waxed arrow. I lingered there as long as four days, and was betrothed to them all, for it seemed shame to set one above her sisters, and might make ill blood in the family. Yet for all my care things were not merry in the house, and I thought it well to come away. <laughs> oh, there, too, is the mill of La Souris, 
old Pierre Le Caron, who owned it, was a right good comrade, and had ever a seat and a crust for a weary archer. He was a man who wrought hard at all that he turned his hand to, but he heated himself in grinding bones to mix with his flour, and so through over-diligence he brought a fever upon himself and died. "'Tell me, Aylward,' said Alan, "'what was amiss with the door of yonder inn that you should ask me to observe it?' Pardieu, yes, I had well-nigh forgot. What saw you on yonder door? I saw a square hole through which doubtless the host may peep when he is not too sure of those who knock. And saw you naught else. I marked that beneath this hole there was a deep cut in the door, as though a great nail had been driven in. And naught else? No. Had you looked more closely, you might have seen that there was a stain upon the wood. The first time that I ever heard my comrade Black Simon laugh was in front of that door. I heard him once again, when he slew a French squire with his teeth, he being unarmed and the Frenchman having a dagger. "'Why did Simon laugh in front of the inn-door?' asked John. "'Simon is a hard and perilous man when he hath a bitter drop in him. By my hilt he was born for war, for there is little sweetness or rest in him. This inn, the Mouton d'Or, was kept in the old days by one François Gourval, who had a hard fist and a harder heart.' It was said that many and many an archer, coming from the wars, had been served with wine with simples in it, until he slept, and had then been stripped of all by this Gourval. Then on the morrow, if he made complaint, this wicked Gourval would throw him out upon the road, or beat him, for he was a very lusty man, and had many stout varlets in his service. This chanced to come to Simon's ears when we were in Bordeaux together and he would have it that we should ride to Cardiac with a good hempen cord, and give this Gourval such a scourging as he merited. Forth we rode then, but when we came to the Mouton d'Or, Gourval had had word of our coming and its purpose, so that the door was barred, nor was there any way into the house. "'Let us in, good master Gourval,' cried Simon, and let us in, good master Gourval,' cried I. But no word could we get through the whole of the door, save that he would draw an arrow upon us, unless we went on our way. "'Well, Master Gourval,' quoth Simon at last, "'this is but a sorry welcome, seeing that we have ridden so far just to shake you by the hand.' "'Canst shake me by the hand without coming in,' said Gourval. "'And how that?' asked Simon. "'By passing in your hand through the hole,' said he. "'Nay, my hand is wounded,' quoth Simon, "'and of such a size that I cannot pass it in.' "'That need not hinder,' said Gourval, who was hot to be rid of us. "'Pause in your left hand.' "'But I have something for thee, Gourval,' said Simon. "'What then?' he asked. "'There was an English archer who slept here last week, of the name of Hugh of Nutbourne. "'We have had many rogues here,' said Gourval. "'His conscience hath been heavy within him, because he owes you a debt of fourteen deniers, having drunk wine for which he hath never paid.' For the easing of his soul, he asked me to pay the money to you as I passed. Now, this Gourval was very greedy for money, so he thrust forth his hand for the fourteen deniers, but Simon had his dagger ready, and he pinned his hand to the door. "'I have paid the Englishman's debt, Gourval,' quoth he, and so rode away, laughing so that he could scarcely sit his horse, leaving mine host still nailed to his door." Such is the story of the hole which you have marked, and of the smudge upon the wood. 
I have heard that from that time English archers have been better treated in the auberge of Cardillac. But what have we here by the wayside? It appears to be a very holy man, said Alan. And by the rood he hath some strange wares, cried John. What are these bits of stone and of wood and rusted nails which are set out in front of him? The man, whom they had remarked, sat with his back against a cherry tree, with his legs shooting out in front of him, like one who is greatly at his ease. Across his thighs was a wooden board, and scattered over it all manner of slips of wood and knobs of brick and stone, each laid separate from the other, as a huckster places his wares. He was dressed in a long grey gown, and wore a broad hat of the same colour, much weather-stained, with three scallop-shells dangling from the brim. As they approached, the travellers observed that he was advanced in years, and that his eyes were upturned and yellow. "'Dear knights and gentlemen,' he cried, in a high, crackling voice, "'worthy Christian cavaliers, will ye ride past and leave an aged pilgrim to die of hunger? The sight has been burned from my eyes by the sands of the Holy Land, and I have had neither crust of bread nor cup of wine these two days past.' "'By my hilt, father,' said Aylward, looking keenly at him, "'it is a marvel to me that thy girdle should have so goodly a span, "'and clip thee so closely, if you have in sooth had so little to place within it.' "'Kind stranger,' answered the pilgrim, "'you have unwittingly spoken words which are very grievous to me to listen to. "'Yet I should be loath to blame you, "'for I doubt not that what you said was not meant to sadden me, "'nor bring my sore affliction back to my mind.' It ill becomes me to prate too much of what I have endured for the faith, and yet, since you have observed it, I must tell you that this thickness and roundness of the waist is caused by a dropsy, wrought on by over-haste in journeying from the house of Pilate to the Mount of Olives. There, Aylward, said Alan, with a reddened cheek, let that curb your blunt tongue. How could you bring a fresh pang to this holy man, who hath endured so much, and hath journeyed as far as Christ's own blessed tomb? "'May the foul fiend strike me dumb!' cried the bowman in hot repentance, but both the palmer and Alan threw up their hands to stop him. "'I forgive thee from my heart, dear brother,' piped the blind man, "'but, oh, these wild words of thine are worse to mine ears than aught which you could say of me.' "'Not another word shall I speak,' said Elwood. "'But here is a franc for thee, and I crave thy blessing.' "'And here is another,' said Alan. "'And another,' cried Hordle John. But the blind palmer would have none of their arms. "'Foolish foolish pride he cried beating upon his chest with his large brown hand foolish foolish pride how long then will it be ere i can scourge it forth am i then never to conquer it o oh, strong strong are the ties of flesh and hard it is to subdue the spirit i come friends of a noble house and i cannot bring myself to touch this money even though it be to save me from the grave alas father said Alan, how then can we be of help to thee? I had sat down here to die, quoth the palmer, but for many years I have carried in my wallet these precious things which you see set forth now before me. It was sin, thought I, that my secret should perish with me. I shall therefore sell these things to the first worthy passers-by, and from them I shall have the money enough to take me to the shrine of Our Lady of Rocamadour, where I hope to lay these old bones." "'What are these treasures, then, father?' asked Hoddle John. "'I can but see an old rusty nail with bits of stone and slips of wood.' "'My friend,' answered the palmer, 
Not all the money that is in this country could pay a just price for these wares of mine. This nail, he continued, pulling off his hat and turning up his sightless orbs, is one of those wherewith man's salvation was secured. I had it, together with this piece of the true rood, from the five-and-twentieth descendant of Joseph of Arimathea, who still lives in Jerusalem, alive and well, though latterly much afflicted by boils. Aye, you may well cross yourselves, and I beg that you will not breathe upon it or touch it with your fingers. And the wood and stone, holy father, asked Alan, with bated breath as he stared awestruck at his precious relics. This cantle of wood is from the true cross, this other from Noah his ark, and the third is from the doorpost of the temple of the wise king Solomon. This stone was thrown at the sainted Stephen, and the other two are from the Tower of Babel. Here, too, is part of Aaron's rod, and a lock of hair from Elisha the prophet. But father, quoth Alan, the holy Elisha was bald, which brought down upon him the revilements of the wicked children. It is very true that he had not much hair, said the palmer quickly, and it is this which makes this relic so exceeding precious. Take now your choice of these, my worthy gentlemen, and pay such a price as your conscience will suffer you to offer. For I am not a chapman nor a huckster, and I would never part with them did I not know that I am very near to my reward. Aylward, said Alan excitedly, this is such a chance as few folk have twice in one life. The nail I must have, and I will give it to the Abbey of Bewley, so that all the folk in England may go thither to wonder and to pray. And I will have the stone from the temple, cried Hordle John. What would not my old mother give to have it hung over her bed? And I will have Aaron's rod, quoth Aylward. I have but five florins in the world, and here are four of them. Here are three more, said John. And here are five more, added Alan. Holy Father, I hand you twelve florins, which is all that we can give, though we well know how poor a pay is, is for the wondrous things which you sell us. "'Down, pride, down!' cried the pilgrim, still beating upon his chest. "'Can I not bend myself to take this sorry sum which is offered me, for that which has cost me the labours of a life? Give me the dross. Here are the precious relics, and, oh, I pray you that you will handle them softly and with reverence, else had I rather left my unworthy bones here by the wayside.' With doffed caps and eager hands the comrades took their new and precious possessions, and pressed onwards upon their journey, leaving the aged palmer still seated under the cherry-tree. They rode in silence, each with his treasure in his hand, glancing at it from time to time, and scarce able to believe that chance had made them the sole owners of relics of such holiness and worth that every abbey and church in Christendom would have bid eagerly for their possession. So they journeyed, full of this good fortune, until opposite the town of Le Mans, where John's horse cast a shoe, and they were glad to find a wayside smith who might set the matter to rights. To him Aylward narrated the good hap which had befallen them. But the smith, when his eyes lit upon the relics, leaned up against his anvil and laughed, with his hand to his side until the tears hopped down his sooty cheeks. "'Why, masters,' quoth he, "'this man is a cockyart, or seller of false relics, and was here in the smithy not two hours ago.' This nail he hath sold you was taken from my nail-box, and as to the wood and the stones, you will see 
a heap of both outside, from which he hath filled his scrip. "'Nay, nay!' cried Alan. "'This was a holy man, who had journeyed to Jerusalem, and acquired a dropsy by running from the house of Pilate to the Mount of Olives.' "'I know not about that,' said the smith. "'But I know that a man with a grey palmer's hat and gown was here no very long time ago, and that he sat on yonder stump, and ate a cold pullet, and drank a flask of wine. Then he begged from me one of my nails, and filling his scrip with stones, he went upon his way. Look at these nails, and see if they're not the same as that which he has sold you.' "'Now may God save us!' cried Alan, all aghast. Is there no end to the wickedness of humankind? He so humble, so aged, so loath to take our money, and yet a villain and a cheat. Whom can we trust or believe in? I will after him, said Aylward, flinging himself into the saddle. Come, Alan, we may catch him ere John's horse be shod. Away they galloped together, and ere long they saw the old grey palmer walking slowly along in front of them. He turned, however, at the sound of their hoofs, and it was clear that his blindness was a cheat like all the rest of him, for he ran swiftly through a field, and so into a wood, where none could follow him. They hurled their relics after him, and so rode back to the blacksmiths, the poorer both in pocket and in faith. End of chapter 26